My God is alive, my God is alive, my God is creator and he is alive. My God is alive, my God is alive, my God is creator and he is alive. He made all the heavens and earth, yes it's true, he showed all his glory so there's no excuse. So worship, adore him, and baptize his name. So that as he enters, his greatness proclaim. My God is alive, my God is alive, my God is alive. The Christ is alive, the Christ is alive, the Christ is our Savior, and he is alive. The Christ is alive. The Christ is alive, the Christ is our Savior, and He is alive. He rose from the bondage and gloom of the grave, exalted on high for the life that He gave. So glory and honor and praise is His name. So chaos of kingdoms His sonship proclaim. The Christ is alive, the Christ is alive. The Christ is alive. God's Word is alive. God's Word is alive. God's Word is the Bible and it is alive. God's Word is alive. God's Word is alive. God's Word is the Bible and it is alive. The Spirit inspired the great men of God who penned all the message while he it sharpens and swords and it passes the same. Since powers is failing, its worth we proclaim. God's word is alive. God's word is alive. God's word is alive. Glorious Father. His promise, sent us His Son, sent us the Spirit, comfort He brings, loves and sustains us, gives us all things. Glorious Father, Almighty One, gave us His promise. Send us His Son, forgive our transgressions, turn not away, cleanse our hearts daily, teach us Your way. Glorious Father, Almighty One, gave us His promise, sent us His Son. Follow his footprints, he tells us how. Give him your will, his will allow. Glorious Father God, his will allow. Father of blessings, all good deeds endow. Ever will trust.
thrust him before his throne bow. Almighty Father God, his will allow. The Bible is a very amazing and wonderful and just an extraordinary book for a lot of different reasons. One of them that always has kind of amazed me is the fact that we get good examples in the Bible, which makes sense. You know, we like to teach those good examples and focus on the good things. But in the pages of the Bible, we also see the bad examples. And we're supposed to look at both and learn from both the good and the bad examples. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 23. And we're going to see here in this chapter that Jesus lists kind of seven different woes. Now, I know that we oftentimes like those uh, you know, blessings like blessed or so-and-so, like the Beatitudes. And we like to focus on those and see those blessings. But kind of the opposite of those blessings would be these woes. And what I want us to notice from this passage here in Matthew 23 is that these woes are not just about them. They're not just for them, you know, the Jews during Jesus' day. There's also a lot that we can learn uh, about them as well if we just pay attention and take notice of those things. Let's look at, uh, before we get into those woes, let's look at just kind of a few things that sort of give us a little bit of background about what's going on and the types of people that he's talking to. Um, now, one thing that I think it's important to understand where this fits in in it, uh, in Matthew's gospel, that like the next two chapters are going to be talking about how the temple is going to be destroyed. And that would have been unthinkable to the Jewish nation. Because the temple is where the very name of God is supposed to, to rest. Where is the name of God supposed to be if you destroy the temple or if the temple just gets destroyed? What's going to happen? Well, this is kind of Jesus' last way to sort of get them to repent, to get them to recognize the seriousness of the situation. Well, let's, let's learn from this example and see the things that Jesus says here. Verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on others' people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Now, I want us to pay attention before we get too far into this, that there's going to be a phrase that keeps getting repeated. And we see it here in verse 2, that it's the teachers of the law and Pharisees. Now, that's important to notice who we're talking about. We're not talking about just kind of the average Israelite who's just trying to make it and just trying to follow God's will, you know, the best that they possibly can and maybe get kind of a little bit of scripture here and there and, and try to follow it and just piece together what God's will is all about. That's not who we're looking at. Now, some of those types of people could, could have perhaps existed, and it would have been difficult whenever you don't have much of God's law to be able to look at and, and much of the Bible to be able to read. That's not who we're looking at. That's not who Jesus is talking to. Jesus is talking here to those teachers of the law, these Pharisees. They are people who know what God has already said. They know the law. In fact, they're the ones who are kind of the, the experts in the law. They're the teachers of the law. But yet, what we see from this passage is that they are still teaching. 
But, you know, what they're teaching is apparently, at least from indication that Jesus has, what they're teaching is still good. And in verse three, we see that Jesus says, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Okay, because they know what they're talking about. So they tell you to do uh, the, the right things. However, at the last part of verse three, uh, we see this phrase and, you know, we kind of quote this phrase a bunch. But Jesus says, for they do not practice what they preach. And that that phrase about practice what you preach, uh, that's one that has come into us. And, you know, it's it's uh, pretty common for us as Christians to talk about that, that, you know, we don't or that we do practice what we preach. It comes from this passage here and this idea that Jesus is saying that, look, they're preaching great things, but they're not practicing these great things that they themselves are teaching. They know the truth. They know better, but they're not doing better. But let's keep looking because there's a little bit more uh, introduction before we get into these woes. Verses 5 through 12. Jesus still speaking. He says, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What Jesus tells us from verse 5 is that everything that they do is done for people to see. What does that look like? Well, it talks about these clothes that they wear. Now, you know, part of these clothes that they wear, yeah, that's that's part of what they were supposed to be wearing. But they were purposely going out of their way to, to do something about their clothes to make special notice about them. So they were doing these things so that people would just see them. I think we can learn from this example. And I think that we need to be careful as well and, and not just do things just because people will see them. You know, people will, will just see, oh, well, you know, I'm doing what's what's right, so everything's okay. There's more than just that. That's not to be our motivation for doing what's right. So they were doing these things so that people would see them. They were dressing the way that they were dressing. They were also kind of talking the way that they were talking. They wanted these uh, nice places of honor to be able to sit in, in verse 6. And we see in verse 7 and following that, that uh, the way they interacted with one another, communicated with one another, showed something about they were just doing it so that people would see them. And we also see in, uh, in verse 12 especially that this deals with how they treat one another. Because they were doing all of these things just so people would see them. That's not a very good motive. That's why Jesus is about to give them seven different woes that we want to avoid. So let's take a look at these seven woes here. Keep in mind, all of these woes are mentioned to these teachers of the law and the Pharisees, the ones who know better, who know what God wants, but they're not doing better. They cannot plead ignorance because they themselves are the ones that are leading other people. Well, let's see how they're leading other people. Jesus starts off these woes in verse 13, where he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor do you let those enter who are trying to. 
please let's learn from this example. And let's see what Jesus says to these people. Because he's talking about this kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a very, uh, it's a very big theme that shows up in the gospels. It's very important to Jesus that he is bringing in this kingdom and this new realization about what the kingdom of heaven uh, on earth, you know, looks like and what, what he's doing. But what he's saying to these people is they're shutting the door in people's faces. They're not entering, but they went beyond just them. See, it's one thing if you're going to mess up your own life. I, I guess you might kind of say it this way. It's, it's one thing if you're going to mess up your own life, but if you're going to do things that is going to purposely mess up other people's lives as well, then you've even gone beyond this. This went beyond just them. Yeah, okay, they're not entering into the kingdom, but they're also not letting other people enter as well. What do you think God thinks about that? I mean, how does he feel about that? How he feels about that is, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees and hypocrites. He's very, very disappointed. This extended beyond the individuals, beyond the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. It extended to those people that they taught. If you want to see what that looks like, Jesus continues on because he's not done with these woes. The next woe shows up in verse 15, where Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Now, I know that you look at this, and this is strong language. This is language we're not typically used to. In fact, this is language that Jesus himself typically doesn't really use. But there's a reason why he's using it. It's to get their attention, to allow them to realize the seriousness of the situation. See, we ourselves, just like Israel was called, we are called to make the world a better place. Going back to even the Garden of Eden, you remember that, that Adam and Eve, they were made in the image of God. They were to be that image of God in the world. And just like Christians today, we are called to be that image of God. We are called to be like Christ. That's what the word Christian means. And I know you hear me say that quite a bit, but I just want us to be reminded that, that Christian is not just, you know, some name. We don't need to take the name Christian, the name Christ, even in vain. We need to recognize the importance of what it means to be Christian. That is saying that we are like Christ. Let's try to live up to this. These people here of Israel, these teachers of the law, these Pharisees, they were going to great lengths in order to win even a single convert. But whenever they did that, they weren't making the world better. They weren't bettering people. They weren't helping people. What they were doing was actually making it worse. They were making the, the person that they were teaching, they were making it twice as worse for that person. What's that going to do in a few generations? If you keep having one generation who the next one makes it twice as worse and then the next one makes it twice as worse. And, and of course, I'm not saying that you just can, can factor this in and just figure it up with math. Okay, that, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's just making the statement, you're making this worse for those people who are coming behind you. How are they making things worse? Well, one of the things that they had simply lost was what it means to be holy what it means for something to be holy, what it means for something to be sacred. And that's what Jesus addresses next. This third woe, verses 16 through 20, Jesus says, Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. 
you blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple and swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. This language that's being used here about swearing, what we're talking about is these oaths. That, that's what it is. They were making an oath and they were, you know, swearing by the temple or swearing by, uh, you know, this gold on the temple or the altar or they were even swearing by um, uh, by the temple itself or by uh, swearing um, heaven itself. You know, they were using all these different things and kind of saying on oath, but they weren't recognizing what it means for something to be holy. They weren't treating these things as holy. They were acting as if, you know, the things on them or the things that came in contact with them were greater than the things themselves. Like he uses this example several different times in verse 17, you know, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? They had lost what it meant to be sacred. They lost what it meant to be holy. What it means to be holy is you're set apart for a specific task. These things were set apart for a specific task task. They were made holy because, you know, they were in the temple. They were being used for this type of service. We need to recognize the things that are holy today, the things that are used in service of God. They had lost this idea of being sacred. They've lost the idea of being holy. They lost even their, their sense of priorities. And they were extremely messed up in many different ways. They, they didn't understand the priorities of even God's commands. And that's what Jesus moves on at after this woe. He moves on and, and gets on to them about the commands of God and how they're following it, or rather, how they're not following it. Let's take a look at that woe. The fourth woe, verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but... You have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat to swallow a camel. There's a lot here, but all of it comes down to the fact that they weren't getting their priorities straight. This comparison that we see here and this, this phrase that we even share about, you know, straining out a gnat but swallowing a camel, a gnat would have been the, the pretty much the smallest animal that they could have thought of. And a camel was pretty much the biggest animal that they could have thought of. Yeah, okay, if we were going to be saying it, we might say something like an elephant or, you know, we might say something like a whale, you know. But, but to Jesus's audience, this was the smallest animal and the largest animal. But we are comparing these things, and it's important to understand that, but the whole reason that he's saying that is we must pay attention to it all, both the small things, but then also or the things that we consider small, and the big things. See, they were paying attention to these small details. These small details, some of these are ones that would be you know, pretty easy to see from the outside. Keep in mind, these were people that everything that they were doing, they were doing it so that they would just be seen by other people. Jesus has had enough. And he says it's not just enough to tithe the right thing. 
issues at the right time. You've got to practice justice, mercy, faithfulness. He's trying to get them to recognize we must pay attention to all that God says, all the commands of God, because it is all important. God gave it all to us. You know, there's a reason why the Bible is exactly as big as it is, why it's not any bigger, why it's not any smaller. God saw fit that the exact size that he gave it to us in was what we needed, was what we, we should be paying attention to. I hope we can learn from this lesson as well as all these other lessons. And I hope that we can do better than this. I hope we can learn from these examples. But there's still some more examples. There's a few more. The fifth woe, Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 and 26. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Now, we're not talking about making sure that our cups and our dishes are clean. Jesus uses that, but that's really a symbol. It's really just kind of a way to, to relate, a way that we can understand, you know, yeah, okay, you understand about when something is, is clean or whenever it's dirty. What he's talking about is they've got this greed. They've got this self-indulgence in them in verse uh, 25. That's what he says. That's what they're full of. They need to clean that out. Now, Jesus also uses a similar example, and the next woe is, is kind of related to this one. And it all comes down to what's inside of them. In this case, Jesus is getting on to the fact that they are full of greed. They're full of self-indulgence. But if we continue, we'll find out there's even more. The sixth woe, verses 27 and 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones and of dead and, and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear as people... You appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. But now this example that he's using is, is these whitewashed tombs. And the importance of that was it was important for you to recognize where the tombs were because you weren't supposed to come in contact with things that were dead or things that were unclean in verse 27. That, that's, what he's, that's what he's talking about because then you yourself would be unclean. So you wanted to make sure that you avoid these, these uh, tombs so they would paint them white, you know, so that you could be able to see them, whitewashed tombs. Um, yeah, okay, they, they look pretty nice on the inside, I mean, on the outside, but on the inside, what we see is they're full of all these things that are unclean. That's used as this example, and to them, they look good on the outside. They look like they've got everything together, just like, you know, we can pretty easily look like we have everything together on the outside as well, but what about the inside of us? The inside of Jesus' audience, from verse 28, he tells them that they're full of hypocrisy, they're full of wickedness. He's already told them that they're full of greed and self-indulgence. These people are full of all of these things. Now, since Jesus has already mentioned the tombs, the next and the, the final woe, it deals with those tombs as well. And Jesus picks up on this, this idea of the tombs. Verses 29 through 32. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. 
So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. Now, here in this in this passage, Jesus addresses the fact that you know, they, they recognize that they're building these tombs for these prophets. They're decorating them. And they're they're even saying, you know, they're they're playing this what if game. And, you know, you can play this, well, what if I had lived during that time? You know, I would have been different. You can play that game if you want, but whenever you look at them, it didn't fare so well for them. It didn't turn out well because, really, they were doing the same types of things. They, they were guilty, just like their ancestors were, because they were acting with this same wickedness that came before them, just like their ancestors did, who, who murdered these very prophets for which they're building the tombs for. It's kind of a weird idea that they're trying to honor them by building the, them uh, these tombs, but yet it's their ancestors who put them to death in the first place. Well, this generation that Jesus is speaking with, if you fast forward a few chapters, what you'll find is this is the same uh, group, or at least a similar type of group, perhaps some of the same people, I, I don't exactly know, that are going to chapters later actually put Jesus to death. They're going to do the same thing to him, just like their ancestor did to all of these other prophets. You know, Jesus himself, he knew that this rejection was coming. That's one of the reasons why he gave them these seven woes. to Give them a chance to repent so that they would wake up, pay attention to what's going on and do something about it and follow God. There's just a couple final things that we can look at from this chapter. This final warning that Jesus gives, because Jesus knew that time was limited for Israel. He knew that they needed to repent, and he knew that they needed to listen to God. And he still gives them another chance, another opportunity to be able to come back to God. Were they going to take it? For the most part, they did. And they put Jesus to death chapters later. But Jesus, knowing all of that, he still gives them the chance. And he speaks with still, once again, some strong language, but important language, very serious matters that Jesus is, is uh, approaching them with. Let's take a look at the, the rest of this chapter. Verses 33 through 36. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and, and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. See, Jesus, he knows the time is limited, but he still says, look, I'm sending you prophets. I'm going to send you sages and teachers. That's what he says in verse 34. But he knows what's going to happen to him. He knows there's going to mistreat him. That's why in verse 35, he says that all of the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth, it's going to come back to them because they're guilty of the same things that their ancestors have done. And the final statement in which Jesus wants to bring in Israel and bring about deliverance to these people. Jesus says this as this chapter ends. Verses 37 through 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, 
For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is how much love Jesus had for these people. He knew they were going to betray him, but he still longed to gather them together. Just like a hen would gather her chicks under her wings. But they weren't willing. They weren't willing to, to be one, to follow the way of Christ, to follow God himself. And because of that, we see that their house is going to be left desolate. The temple is going to be destroyed. The whole city is going to be destroyed. And it, and it happens in 70 AD. That's that the whole place of Jerusalem. It, it was destroyed. It was left desolate. And he knew this was going to be coming. That's why he uses this strong language, begging them, pleading with them to come together under his wing. But they wouldn't have it. They weren't willing. And he says in verse 39, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let us not let this be said of us, too, that we were unwilling to come to Christ. Let us say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And let's mean it. And let's live it. Thank you.